have to ask your forgiveness for my state of semi-disabile. I apparently, I brought a tie, I just have forgotten to put it on. So in any event, I apologize. It was my intention uh, for several weeks that today we would spend our time in Hebrews chapter 9 because there is perhaps no better expression of how the New Testament and the New Covenant relates to the Old Covenants and how indeed the New Testament relates to the Old Testament and the purposes of God are seen consistent uh, between the two. Uh, and but then I realized as I spent time in Hebrews chapter 9, it's uh, what we'll talk about in a moment. It's, I, I, I personally don't believe Paul wrote it, but uh, he, like Paul, the writer is so connected that you it's difficult to jump into chapter 9 because he talk, uh, talks about a new and a better covenant. And he, then you realize that that idea really is first addressed in chapter 8. And then you realize that it's a new and better covenant because it's a new and better priest. And so the idea of the priesthood of Christ and what he does and who he is as the priest of the new covenant is really picked up in chapter 5, 6, and 7. And then you realize that he's a better priest because he is higher than the angels, which is discussed in chapter 4. And then he talks about how he's a better messenger and a better messenger in chapters 1 to 3, so uh, you really just have to back all the way up to the beginning. So we're going to begin uh, the letter to the Hebrews this morning, which is I was really not planning on uh, jumping into a series on the letter to the Hebrews, but um, the Lord works in mysterious ways, so here we are, uh, and we're going to talk about Hebrews this morning and what we know of this letter, and that's one of the things that makes it so wonderfully um, Well, difficult in some ways, but also just uh, it's a bit of an enigma. We don't know who wrote it. The truth is uh, it's been attributed over the centuries to Paul. It's been attributed to Barnabas. It's been attributed to Luke. Uh, some people say that Priscilla and Aquila wrote it. Um, there are a number of people that held that Apollos actually wrote it. But one thing that uh, we know is that God inspired it. So we don't know who wrote it, and if that, if that causes you a little unease, just recognize that the church down through the centuries have felt under the leadership of the Holy Spirit that this was an inspired part of God's Word. The message is timeless. The fact is we don't really know for sure to whom it was written. Uh, it's been speculated that it was written... Uh, towards the end of the first century, before the Jerusalem fell, which would have been 70 A.D., before Jerusalem was utterly destroyed and the temple uh, was still standing, which caused these people to be tempted to go back into go back into Judaism because of just the, the beauty and the wonder and the glory of the temple in Jerusalem. And since uh, it was still standing, it was a temptation to them. But the fact is that's not specifically said in the letter, and we don't know to whom it was written. It doesn't say to the Hebrews. It doesn't say written by whom. And so in all of Paul's letters, without exception, the first couple of verses start out, I, Paul, and then he goes on to describe himself in every single letter that we know he wrote, and the Hebrews just jumps right in with God. And so that is very not uh, Paul-like, and he doesn't name his uh, recipients. The difficulty in that is that it makes it hard sort of to understand and be sure that we are accurately interpreting uh, because when we read a letter of Paul, for example, to the Corinthians, it is as my 
my dear, dearly departed brother uh, Calvin used to say, it's like going to their mailbox and sneaking a letter out of their mailbox and reading it. And you have to know to whom it was written. You have to know who the people are that it's written about. And you have to know who wrote it to accurately interpret what's going on. Because most of Scripture, and hear me carefully, I don't want anybody leaving here saying, uh, Brother William doesn't believe the Scripture is for us. Most Scripture was not written to you. It was written to a specific purpose, or for a specific purpose, to a specific people in a very specific historical context. And it's written for us to learn from. We glean from the truths found in it, but it was not originally written to us. Hebrews almost seems to, to sort of cross that barrier because everything the writer of Hebrews says is so eternal, is so true, so foundational, and uh, just so rich in its doctrine and theology that when he writes it, it is though almost it's to us because this is what he warns us about when he talks about drifting away from the faith, and we'll get there at some point. But when he begins to talk about the truth of who Christ is, Several things we know about the writer. Number one, he's very familiar with the Old Testament. Perhaps no other book, including Paul's writing to the Romans, addresses or utilizes the Old Testament as much as Hebrews does. Over and over and over, he's just dropping in quotes from the Old Testament, particularly the prophets and so forth. So we know whoever wrote it, he was very familiar with his Old Testament, uh, but not so familiar as to know addresses, as Brother Stephen would say. Because uh, Hebrews, is uh, chapter 2, I believe is verse 3, he famously says, you know, somebody has said somewhere, and then he quotes the Old Testament, but he doesn't tell us which prophet, he just, but apparently he knows it. And he, apparently, he kind of approaches the Old Testament with um, a break from the Old Testament traditions that had been held by the Hebrew people for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So it almost seems like he, he, he knows his Hebrew scripture, but he's kind of new to it. So he puts a, a very distinctive new kind of interpretation and understanding of the Old Testament, and he pulls from it from all over. So having said that, the whole theme of the book of Hebrews, of the letter to the Hebrews, can be summed up in this. And I think if you if you read any commentaries, you hear some other uh, pastors on the radio who are wonderful. By the way, I'm not saying they're they're incorrect, but they talk about the whole the whole letter is written to uh, a people who had sort of gone adrift from their faith, and it's a warning against drifting away from our orig our original faith and what the original teachings of the apostles was. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I think if you wanted to sum up the entire letter to the Hebrews, it is just uh, three words. Jesus is better. And we're going to talk about that this morning. He's a better messenger. He's a better message. He's better than the angels. He's better than the priesthood. He brings a better covenant. He's a better servant. And he's a better hero. And all through Hebrews, that's the message that Jesus is superior to all that has come before him. And he lays the foundation of that this morning, and our goal will be to cover uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And we want to talk about how we see eight things about Jesus uh, in, this, in this passage. I asked Trevor this morning if this was the, the list that I had talked about before, because I could not remember for the life of me if I've ever talked about this passage uh, in a sermon. And so I was thinking... I don't know if it's the list that Treva has a partial list of in her Bible because she weren't listening good that day. And 
Actually, it's my fault. I got, I got the numbering all messed up that day. And so she's always been after me to, to find that outline and give her the rest of the things that I said. But that was from Acts. And there were 12 things we said about Jesus. And by number five, I was so hopelessly messed up. That's, that's as far as she got. So I was wondering if this is the same passage. And if it is, I don't want to say like, uh, eight different things than I said before. So I clarified this morning. That's from chapter eight of, uh, the book of Acts. So we're going to see eight things this morning uh, in the letter to the Hebrews that God says, or the writer says, uh, about the Son and how Jesus is better. And he lays the foundation for what will be the rest of the letter. And we'll see most of that alluded to here. In the letter to the Hebrews, this is what the Lord gives us. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now there is a summation of how Christ is better. He is a better messenger. He is a better message. He's better than the priest. He's better than the angels. He's a better covenant. And so we're going to get to all those things in the coming chapters as we go through in the next few weeks. But we talk about, first of all, that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, obviously he's talking about the Old Testament saints and the Old Testament prophets. When he talks about the fathers, and I may mention this as we've talked about the covenants, whenever they reference our fathers or the fathers, typically it's a reference reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's talking about these covenants, and we talked about it when we talked about that covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, how it was repeated to Isaac and Jacob. So he's talking about the fathers of the old covenant and the prophets. And what, God, what he's saying is that God spoke to them in many portions and in many ways, but Jesus is better than that. He is better than our fathers. You recall Jesus meets a, uh, uh, somebody, I believe a, a woman at the well, and he begins to talk to her about the nature of the well, and she says to him famously, what, are you better than our father Abraham? And the great irony in that scene is, yes, he is, precisely, now you're on to something. He is better than our fathers. He is better than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even though God used them as his instruments, they were still sinful, imperfect beings, and they could not do anything directly to achieve your salvation or mine. And yet Jesus comes along and he says, God, after he spoke long ago to our fathers and then to the prophets... Now he has spoken in Christ. And you see this idea that there is the old and the new, the lesser to the greater. The prophets were inspired to write as they wrote. They did speak the words of God. And he came to them in a unique and a special way of direct revelation. And he spoke to them and he would say, tell the people, thus saith the Lord. And so they were spokesmen for him, but they were still merely human spokesmen for God. But Christ has come as God himself. 
And so he says, the fathers, even though they were uh, beneficial to us, and the prophets, and God did speak through them. So do not hear me saying that God did not speak through the fathers, and he did not speak through the prophets, because the writer of Hebrews affirms that God spoke through the fathers, and God spoke through the prophets. So he's affirming that God has used them, and God has spoken through them. But he did so, and he says, in many portions, and in many ways. What do I mean by portions? Because the fathers were only human, and because the prophets were only human, God spoke to them and revealed himself to the point and extent to which they could receive it. And it was a progressive matter. And so God begins to reveal himself little by little, bit by bit, to the prophets, and they would prophesy the great truths of Yahweh, and then Yahweh would reveal his plan more and more with succeeding covenants and succeeding prophets. And so when he says he gave them portions, he's not saying that it was different, it's just a smaller portion of the bigger truth, and the bigger truth being Christ. So he said, in many ways, you recall the prophets often had visions and dreams and so forth. Sometimes the word of God would just come unto them. I, I've never had that happen. Uh, well, I say I haven't. And you may think, well, I, I've never had that. I've never, you know, God, the word of God's never, like, come to me like that. Um, well, you have, if you've ever opened the Bible, then you have the Word of God. Uh, so I, I do not believe God speaks to individuals the way he did to the prophets then, because now we have the final revelation of God. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment, because this is, the writer of Hebrews says, the final revelation is in Christ. And there is nothing forthcoming, there is nothing down the path, there is nothing else to be said because he has spoken to us through him. So he says that through the, the early prophets and the fathers, he spoke to us. In these last days, though, he says he has spoken to us his son, in his son. When he says he is in these last days, I don't know if you have marginal references in your Bible, but in mine it says, um, literally it's translated, at the end of these days. And so when we look at that phrase, when he says he's spoken to the fathers and then he spoke through the prophets in many portions in many ways and at the end of these days. Okay? So what is these? What, what does that reference? Because sometimes we look at that and we say, well, we're in the last days because it says, you know, in, in these last days, when he talks about when the end of these days, these references something. And these are the days in which God spoke to the fathers and through the prophets. And so he's saying that God spoke that way, but in the end, at the end or final time of these days, when he spoke through the prophets and uh, through the fathers, now he has spoken through Christ. So he is the final revelation of what God has for his people. The first thing I want to notice is, is just that, that he is the final expression of God's character, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, but he's the final expression of God's revelation of himself. There is no additional revelation forthcoming. There is no additional prophet or savior. Okay? Muhammad adds nothing 
to the work of Christ. Joseph Smith adds nothing to the work of Christ, nor the message of Christ. The message of Christ, about Christ, through Christ and in Christ, that is the final and complete, that's the last of the revelations. That's why we simply preach Christ. To add to or detract from the work of Christ, the person of Christ, the purpose of Christ, in what God has said and spoken and revealed through Him is to do sacrilege and heresy to the Word of God. You don't have the privilege and honor of coming along with another testament. There is no other testament. Which is why Jesus says famously at the end of the book of Revelation, and I will be with you always. It's done. This is your message. There is no other. And we can, we don't know how long we're going to be here. Maybe that Christ come back in, in my view of sort of the epistemology of in uh, times, I think you could, uh, he could come back tomorrow. He could come back this second. I think prophecy's been fulfilled. He could come back, uh, you know, before we finish this service. Or he could tarry another hundred years and another thousand years and still be true to his word. I, we don't know. And the funny thing is, we're so desperate to know. It's just those kind of books that fly off bookshelves. You know, I'm going to write another book of, about, I don't know, the seven red moons or something like that. And then when that doesn't happen, I'm going to write a follow-up book about how I was a little bit wrong on my first book and tell you the new date. And when that doesn't happen, I'll, well, I'll just keep writing books. And the interesting thing to me is when his disciples ask him, Lord, is it going to be at this time that you're going to set up the kingdom? Is it going to be at this time that you renew things? Is it going to be at this time you usher in this, this new regime? And what does Jesus say? I don't know. He said, I don't even know. That's not for you to know. And yes, the one, you know, tell a child there's something they can't have. And what do they want more than anything? Whatever it is, they can't have. And we're so like that. Jesus says, not for you to know. I don't even know. Here's what you need to focus on. Be doing the Father's work. No, we want to talk about when you're coming back. It's not for him to know even. Now, that is quite a confession if you think about it. I mean, Jesus in his humanity said, look, I don't even know. That's the Father's area. And yet we're so desperate to figure it out. So, he is the final work of God's revelation. That's why Jesus said, it is finished. When he says final, he doesn't mean just sort of the end, but it is complete. It has been made whole. He is the final fruition of everything that has been said before him. The second thing we see about him is he has been made heir of all things. He has been made heir of all things. It says, in the last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And you would think, wait a minute. If he's his Son, what's the thing about being heir to all things? Because he is uniquely the Son of God, and the Son as heir to the Father. What does that have to do with us? Because you and I, as brothers in Christ, though by adoption... If he is heir to all things, then we as brothers and sisters in Christ and being part of Christ, we are heir to all things. You know, there's a great song, I think it was an old Gaither song. Um, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. There's a line in there that talks about being heir. 
to God himself. How, how does that happen through the blood of Christ? This is why, this is why the writer of Hebrews is so excited about Jesus. Look what he is imparting to those who come to know him, who are made sons and daughters through the work of his, his son uniquely in Christ. And we are adopted through Christ as sons and daughters of the living God and thus heirs. I may share with you, you know, my, my, uh, what, what, I, what I was heir to in this life is, is a wonderful antique colander painted black with some river rocks in it. Just that, that's, that's the spray treasure right there. And it's deeply sentimental and meaningful because my grandmother typed up a little description about where every rock came from and she taped it on the bottom. But when I think of that compared to being an heir, not a of salvation, but all that God has, you and I will get to enjoy because we will be in Him with Him forever. I think I'll pass on the colander of rocks. I'll go with being an heir with Christ. So God has made Him heir of all things through whom, number three, through whom God also made the world. When God spoke, it was the agency of Christ that created. And numerous places in Paul's writings repeats this theme, and John repeats this theme, that through him everything has been made that has been made, and nothing has been made that has been made except through him. And so he says it forwards and backwards just so you can't miss it. Jesus Christ is the agent of creation. The Father willed it to be so. Jesus spoke and it became so. Which is kind of exciting if you think, if, is there anyone pleading your case before the throne? Just the Creator Himself. Jesus, we'll learn from Hebrews later on, that Jesus lives eternally to make intercession. In other words, to speak on your behalf and my behalf before the throne of grace. So He was the one who created the world. The fourth thing we see, are we up to four? Okay, fourth thing we see is he is the radiance of his glory. So let's get our pronouns just so we're understanding um, if we go back and fill in names. And Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And the word, the, the radiance uh, can also be translated the effluence. In other words, the effluence is something that flows out of something else. So Jesus, as the incarnate deity, is the outflowing of God's glory. Which is why when he takes Peter, James, and John onto the mount we call the mountain of transfiguration, and they behold him, he is transformed, and he allows his glory to be seen, um, we recognize that Jesus is the outflowing of God's glory. Can you imagine such a thing? What he will be like, look like, when he returns. If you read the book of Revelation, the mild-mannered and, and sort of... Uh, Humbled Jesus is not the returning Christ that Revelation talks about. 
In fact, if you, and you can find it online, you look at some artists' renderings of the return, the returning Christ and what Jesus will look like, the image that is painted of him in the book of Revelation is terrifying in his glory. Omnipotent. Unspeakable in the magnitude of who he is. This is the Christ. He is the effluence. He is the radiance of God's glory. And he's also, number five, the exact representation of his nature. In theological terms, they call this the monogonus. In other words, of the same substance. There's one substance. Three entities, but one substance, and that is of God. See, Christ is not only the radiance of his glory, but he is the exact representation or substance of his nature. You want to you know what God thinks? Just look at what Jesus said. We have so many people today trying to tell you what Christianity is all about. We have great theologians like Lady Gaga and some of the other you know, big theological names telling you what Christianity is because they're Christians after all. And Christianity means loving one another unconditionally and so forth and so on. Um, you and I do not have the right to change what it means to be a Christian. What it means to be a Christian is whatever the Christ said it meant to be a Christian. You don't get to come along later and say, well, this is what I think. Um, here's the thing. What you and I think it means to be a Christian, if it deviates from what Jesus in the Word of God says it means to be a Christian, we're wrong. Just mark it down. We're wrong. You don't get to redefine what the founder said was being a Christian. Now, you might be a lot of things. You might be a nice person, a good person, a loving person, a moral person. You know, you, you love other people. You just want to champion rights here, there, and yonder. But if you deviate from the teachings of Christ, then you are something, I suppose, but mark it down, you are not a Christian. And so, he reflects the nature of God himself. Number six, I think. All right, number six. Number six, he upholds all things by the word of his power. It's interesting, this idea, and it's picked up on by a number of great theologians over the, over the centuries. Uh, and I think one of the most interesting, at least to me, was a more modern uh, writer named uh, Arthur Pink. Arthur W. Pink was a, a great... Um, reformed theologian, and he, he wrote in a paragraph on the sovereignty of God through Christ or Christ in his sovereignty. He says, what this means is that he upholds everything in the world and it holds together because of his direct, intentional, intellectual, volitional will. In other words, Pink says, he not only holds together this world in some big generic kind of way, he is aware of and in control of every atom and every neuron, every proton, every electron, and were he not intentionally holding it together, it would simply fly apart. 
It holds its substance, and we have the world we have and the consistency of the physical realm in which we exist simply because and as a direct result of the intentional holding together by Christ. You say, how can, how can he do Well, he created it. And this is what I, uh, some of the students in my class were kind of surprised when I made the statement last week that, that God has never discovered anything and he has never been surprised by something we've discovered. Okay? Splitting the atom did not surprise God. Okay? It's not like he said, they're atoms. How's that? How, hey, man, these, these, some, well, there's some smart humans down there. I don't know how they figured that out, but they're, they're atoms. Who, who knew? God. I mean, he created it. He knew they were there. Not only did he know they were there and he put them there and holds them there, he knew that we would figure it out. You almost get the feeling he, he likes to watch us figure out. Say, so you want to explore the mysteries of my universe? Have at it. And by the way, every time you discover something new, recognize it shows my glory. It shows the wonder, the magnitude, the unimaginable creativity that I possess that you can't even get your mind around. You think splitting the atom's great. Just wait till you see all eternity and all the cosmos, which is there simply to demonstrate my glory. Why, why is the cosmos eternal? Why is it constantly expanding? Because there is no end to his glory. There is no end to, to what he does and who he is. And so that's exactly why it doesn't surprise me that scientists tell us that space is continually and always expanding because you can never demonstrate the magnitude of a sovereign and holy God to its fullest degree. Although we'll get all eternity to try. Through whom he also made the world the radiance of his glory, the exact representation, the same substance of his nature, and he upholds all things, the power of his will. When he had made purifications, or purification of sins. Number seven, he is the purification of our sin. And this we'll see picked up later on. When we get to chapters 5 through 7, and he begins to talk about that Jesus is a better priest. He is a better priesthood. And he's not only a better priest, one of the things that the priest would do, as you know, was go in once a year when he would make an atoning sacrifice for the people. And the writer of Hebrews will say over and over, they do this repeatedly year after year because it has to be done year after year because the priest is not eternal. He is human. He is mortal. And he will pass away. And people will continue in sin. So that's the thing about sin. We can always find more. I mean, some of us are, are pretty good at it. You can always find another way to mess up. And if you don't think so, just wait long enough and ask people to be real honest with you. And trust me, you're more of a discoverer than maybe you think you are. We can always find more sin, and that's the problem. What we need is not just a, a priest that will go in once a year and, and offer atoning sacrifice for our sins for that year. We need a priest that is eternal because we are going to struggle with this. And so he gives us a better priest. So he says, after he had made purification for sins, 
What sins? Yep. It doesn't matter what you fill in the blank. My sins, all of them that I committed like right up until this second, yes, and more. The ones that I will commit, yes, they have been purified. They have been paid for. They have been, they have been purchased. You have been purchased because you have been forgiven because he paid the price for them, all of them. And that's why uh, the Bible says that we, the Bible says somewhere that we have been saved to the uttermost. The idea is for eternity past, Christ paid for the sins of the elect. And for eternity future, Christ paid for the sins of the chosen. He spilt his blood, as Rob read for us this morning, for the many. And so this idea that, you know, I don't know. Maybe you can lose your salvation. Maybe you can. Uh, and we'll get to the passage in chapter I believe, 4 where he's, there's a 7. Okay, well, I knew it was somewhere, you know, between like 1 and 12. Um, Hebrews talks to the writer. Hebrews will say something uh, to the effect of, you know, having put your hand to the plow. If you look back, you know, you've fallen from grace and so forth. There's some of that drifting we were talking about, the temptation to go back into Judaism. We'll talk about what that means and what it doesn't mean. But the idea that somehow you could do something so extraordinarily surprising to the sovereign God that he did not see it, and so it was not laid on Christ, and so now you're condemned for eternity for that sin is absurd. God either paid for the sin, or Christ either paid for the sin on the cross, all of them, or none of them. I'm going to go with all. Because, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I need more grace than most people. Sometimes I feel like I need more grace than anyone. You've never surprised God. <laughs> You're not that clever. You've never come up with a sin so original, so unthinkable, so exclusively just out of the box that God said, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I paid for all your sins, but I left that one out because I just never dreamed you would do that. Now he paid for them, one and all, on the cross. I'll never forget the day at the T4G conference, the first one, I hope that conference holds a lot of memories for um, for me. I've only been to, I guess, three, I think. And uh, the most recent one was a wonderful time with some of the men of our church. And what a wonderful gathering. Um, and I guess it was the very first one I'd gone to before that with when Brother Calvin and I went. And there is something incredibly powerful at that time of about 30,000 men. Primarily, there were some ladies there too. Um, when you break out, just that many voices to nothing but the piano, of it is well with my soul. And you get to that wondrous, I think it's the third verse, my sin, not in part, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. And Brother Calvin, at least in our 
worship services when that wasn't always the most gregorious of worshipers. But there I looked over next to me, he's got his hands lifted high and tears flowing down his face. As he sang those words, we sang them together. What a glorious thought that my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Even so, it is well with my soul. When he had made purification for sins, then he sat down. The idea, the image of sitting down is because you're finished. You're done. When we get off a long day of work, a lot of us, you want to get home, you just want to sit down. Not that Jesus was weary, but he was finished. And that's why he says, it is finished. And when he had finished, he sat down. But he didn't just sit down anywhere. He sat down where does it say? Right hand of the majesty of God. You say, well, does that mean he's like physically sitting to, to the right of God? There's like two. Right hand of the majesty. You understand that majesty is only used for one person in our terms. And this is a book, though it's divine and inspired, it is written in human terms. Majesty is used of one office, one person, which is the king. The king has majesty. The king has authority. The idea is this, that Jesus was not only propitiation for our sin, he was not only the high priest who offered that propitiation, but he is also the king. That is unique. That is more better than the old priest. And the reason Jesus is better than the old priest is because in uh, their history, you had priests and you had kings, but they were never the same person. Until... You get to Jesus, who is not only the priest, he's the sacrifice, and he's not only the sacrifice and the priest, he is the king. He sat down, the right hand of the majesty of God. Understand this, Jesus did not become divine when he sat down. He was born divine. He did not become divine at some point in his earthly ministry. Some teach that he was sort of adopted by God at his baptism. Right? When the Holy Spirit came down and lighted on him and God said, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He didn't become God. He has always been God, is God, and will always be God. But he also became king and he went from creating a people to creating a nation to creating an empire, a.k.a. a kingdom. You know the difference between a kingdom and a nation? Kingdoms contain many nations. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty of God because he is king of his kingdom. That's better. That's just so much better. It doesn't negate the old covenants. doesn't make them um, not part of God's history. He's going to say later on in the book that the old covenants have been made void. 
We have to be very careful how we interpret that word, but we're going to see that they are a continue. They've come to fruition. It's like when some people, uh, you pay off your house, you know, you have a, well, I don't know if people do this anymore, you used to have a mortgage burning ceremony. Well, if that's a good idea or not, seems like you ought to save some paperwork or something. But anyway, churches used to do that too, have a mortgage burning ceremony. In other words, you know, that's been paid for, it's done. So the old covenants, it's not that they were useless, but they have been fulfilled. The debt has been paid. So now we live in the new covenant, which is more better. Because Jesus is more better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Father, that you are not just better. Father, you are the sine qua non, the one beyond whom there is nothing better. Lord, we just thank you for your sovereignty, your holiness, your goodness. And that for reasons, Father, that boggle our minds, you love us enough to impart to us a righteousness that we could never earn, fulfill, or perform, and we do not deserve. Yet your word tells us that you poured it out, you lavished it on us with eagerness. An eagerness so great that you were willing to die to make it so. Your word would tell us, Father, the new covenant is not ratified until the one making it dies. So you wrote the covenant and laid down your life. How magnificent you are. We love you and we thank you. And it is in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.